We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 150 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. And yes, I did say episode 150. Jeez, we're already halfway to episode 200 in terms of what we've done since episode 100. It feels like I just did episode 100 a few days ago. Now we're already halfway to episode 200 since episode 100. Time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're doing a podcast. Will we be having fun when the Washington football team plays at the Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon at 1? I'm not sure. I'll be honest. I don't have a great feeling about this game. Uh, The Bills defense was very good last season, maybe even better this season. The Bills offense has had some problems through two games, but of course, uh, Washington's defense has had some problems through two games. Well, Washington practiced on Tuesday. Both Ron Rivera and Taylor Heineke spoke via post-practice press conference. Next segment, I'm going to get into a bunch of things with this game for Washington at Buffalo on Sunday, including where Washington is in its rebuild. You know, few teams in the NFL over the last few years rebuilt as quickly and effectively as the Sean McDermott head coach Bills. Can Ron Rivera duplicate that here with Washington? I'm also going to talk about the Ron Rivera-Sean McDermott dynamic. You know, the history between those two predates their time together with the Carolina Panthers. Ron and Sean actually are part of the Bill Walsh coaching tree. I'll explain. I'll also react to Ron calling this game at the Bills, a measuring stick game. Uh, I will give you a Taylor Heineke segment. Heineke on Tuesday had a lot to say about his performance in the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field this past Thursday night. Uh, We also got a Cam Sims update on Tuesday. Ron addressed Cam having barely played over Washington's first two games. You'll hear that. We on Tuesday night had an easy, breezy win for the Nationals. 7-1 the final at the Miami Marlins as Josh Rogers continued to deal for the Nats. 
Uh, Josh Rogers, a starting pitcher who the pitching-starved Orioles said no thank you to. Uh, that guy has been maybe the Nats' most reliable pitcher here lately. I'll talk Nationals later in the show. Uh, I mentioned the O's. Uh, they actually got walked off on Tuesday night, 3-2 and 10 innings at the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, welcome back to the majors, Cesar Valdez. Uh, I'll hit on the O's late in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Matthew Price on the Washington football team off the win over the Giants this past Thursday night. Writes Matthew, very excited about what Heineke did. Backbreaking pick overcome by a big-time drive and some help from the Giants. Defense is a huge concern right now. McLaurin is undeniably a top 10 receiver in my biased opinion. Funny story. I went to buy Heineken beers for the game on Thursday night for obvious reasons. I don't usually buy them, so I just picked up the first six-pack I saw. I get home and see it says 0.0%. Turns out I bought the non- alcoholic version. Very disappointing, but the outcome of the game and the way Heineke played made up for it. Uh, Ah, that is a killer, buying non-alcoholic beer when you don't mean to. But perhaps being sober enhanced your experience watching Taylor Heineke do what he did on Thursday night. You know, Heineke at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday actually got asked about potentially endorsing Heineken beer. This all started with Heineke's response to the question of what he did over the weekend, and then you'll hear a follow-up question from Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. Watched a lot of college football, a lot of, a lot of NFL football, had a couple Heinekens, and uh, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of resting, so uh, it, was, it was a nice relaxing weekend. Has that endorsement deal come through yet? I'm trying, man. I'm trying, <laughs> yeah. At, at some point, I might just start calling out Bud Light, you know. (laughs) A shameless attempt by Taylor Heineke to work Heineken into his answer there uh, to that question about what he did over the weekend. But yeah, Matthew, buying non-alcoholic beer is a killer when you want to buy alcoholic beer. And just like you have to be careful with what kind of beer you buy, you also have to be careful with who you hire as your real estate agent. Listen up if you're trying to sell your home or wanting to sell your home, need to sell your home, or even are just thinking about selling your home. Who you go with as your real estate agent matters. You need someone who is going to put together a plan specific to you and your home. You need someone who understands the real estate market in the DMV. And you need someone who isn't just going to demand some outrageous commission. That someone is John Grandland of Real Broker, the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Similar to Position Flex. What is Commission Flex, you ask? It's simple. Flexible commission rates. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are done. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Granlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Granlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission. Some conditions do apply, but interviewing John Granlin is a no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do 
to get top dollar. Maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. So if you need to sell your home but aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, again, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. You're not obligated to anything. Call John Granlin now, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G., Make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, so the Washington football team on Tuesday began the team's practice week for this Sunday afternoon's game at the Buffalo Bills. As we talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 149, we, in this game, have a head coaching battle of two guys who know each other well, Ron Rivera versus Sean McDermott. Ron, of course, was Carolina Panthers head coach for eight-plus seasons, 2011 to 2019. Sean was Ron's defensive coordinator for six seasons during Ron's time as Panthers head coach, 2011 through 2016. But there's more to the Rivera-McDermott connection than just their time together with the Panthers. Ron and Sean worked together with the Philadelphia Eagles during Andy Reid's time as Eagles head coach. Ron was Eagles linebackers coach from 1999 through 2003. Sean worked in various roles for the Eagles for 10 seasons, 2001 through 2010. Now, Andy Reid was an assistant coach for the Green Bay Packers during the entirety of Mike Holmgren's time as Packers head coach, 1992 through 1998. Holmgren was an assistant coach for the San Francisco 49ers from 1986 through 1991. So Holmgren worked under both Bill Walsh and George Seifert during their tenures as 49ers head coach. There is no coaching tree in the NFL quite like the Bill Walsh coaching tree. Ron Rivera and Sean McDermott are a part of that Bill Walsh coaching tree. Now, you got to trace back a bit, okay? You almost have to use Ancestry.com, but Ron and Sean are part of the greatest coaching tree in NFL history. And McDermott is very much doing his part to uphold that uh, Bill Walsh coaching tree legacy. The Bills last season went 13-3 and in the regular season, won the AFC East, and lost in the AFC Championship game 38-24 at the Kansas City Chiefs. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday on what excites him about this game at the Bills. Well, I, I, first of all, I think they're a measuring stick. You know, when, when you talk about teams that have opportunities every year now to, to, to compete and, and do some great things, this is one of them. So you should measure yourself to the great teams in, in, in this league right now, the teams that are really, really good. So that's how we feel. We feel like we're, we're coming up against a measuring stick and really kind of see, you know, where we are and how, how far we have to go. Yeah, so Ron calls this Sunday's game at the Bills a measuring stick game. And he's right. The Bills were one of the best teams in the NFL 
last season. Now, you heard Ron mention how far we have to go. It's easy to forget this, but Washington remains in the midst of a rebuild. That doesn't get talked about a lot, but that is the truth. Washington, in theory, is still rebuilding. You know, now Washington is trying to win while rebuilding, but Washington is still rebuilding. The Bills not too long ago were rebuilding. Uh, Their rebuild has gone quite well. The Bills went 17 consecutive seasons without a playoff appearance, 2000 through 2016, but now have made the playoffs three times over the last four seasons with Sean McDermott as head coach and Brandon Bean as general manager. Bean, like McDermott, worked for the Panthers. The Bills, in a lot of ways, are a model for what Washington is trying to do. If you told me that Washington's rebuild under Ron ends up going like the Bills' rebuild under Sean, uh, I would be doing cartwheels down Loudoun County Parkway, and I have a feeling you'd be right there with me. And so what about the rebuild for the Washington football team? The Bills under McDermott and Bean turn things around quickly. Going back to Andy Reid, he is Eagles head coach, turn things around quickly. The Eagles in Reid's first season as head coach, 1999, went 5 and 11. I said 5 and 11. Okay, we wound up 5 and 11. Not very good. Yes, thank you, Steve Spurrier. It's not very good. Uh, So the Eagles in Andy Reid's first season as head coach, 1999, went 5 and 11, but the Eagles then had five consecutive double-digit win seasons, 2000 through 2004. And remember, Ron Rivera was a big part of those as Eagles linebackers coach from 1999 through 2003. Where is Washington when it comes to the team turning things around as the Eagles did with Andy Reid and as the Bills have done with Sean McDermott? Ron Rivera on Tuesday. Well, I think we're trending, you know, Um, and, and it may not be reflected all the time, the way people want it to be reflected. But as long as we're growing, developing, and, and we're feeling good about what we're doing and we're understanding what, what it takes, we're headed in the right direction. I, I believe that. Um, and, you know, I don't expect things to happen overnight. I really don't. I mean, last year was a little bit, little, little odd. The whole year was odd. Um, you know, but, but, you know, I try to remind myself too, you know, that, that we're building, we're in a process. You know, we have to stick to the process. We have to stick to, 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 to really pretty much what the plan is. And so we'll see how it goes. Yes, we will. So Ron says of where Washington is in the rebuild, quote, I think we're trending, end quote. But Ron also does what he has done in the past when discussing Washington's rebuild. Downplays winning the NFC East at 7-9 and nine last season and preaches that the rebuild takes time and is a process. Ron has been very consistent with that messaging. Ron has never gone out of his way to celebrate winning the NFC East last season. Going back to early this past offseason, Ron was like, yeah, we won the NFC East, but, you know, it was not a great division. We did not have a great record. Ron's been very upfront about those things, and of course, he's right in saying those things. Look, there are no secrets as to how the Eagles turn things around quickly with Andy Reid as head coach and how the Bills have turned things around quickly with Sean McDermott as head coach. A, those guys are very good head coaches. B, each team had a young stud quarterback, right? Eagles had Donovan McNabb, Bills have Josh Allen. C, each team got its defense 
to being very good. Can Washington right now check all three of those boxes? Very good head coach, young stud quarterback, very good defense. No, Washington cannot check all three of those boxes. The question would be how many of those boxes can Washington check right now? Because I think Ron Rivera is a good head coach, but you can't say with certainty that Washington has a young stud quarterback, although more and more we're kind of trending in that direction now, aren't we? And with the defense, can we say that Washington has a very good defense? I mean, we certainly could say that last season. Can't say that so far this season. I do think at some point this season, we will be saying that. But the question is, when exactly uh, are we going to be saying that? So time will tell. Uh, but going back to Taylor Heineke for a moment and the idea of Washington having a young stud quarterback. So that is the thing that would change everything more than anything, okay? Like, in all seriousness, this is another part of what's going on with Taylor Heineke. The potential for Washington to have stumbled into what the franchise has been starving for for three-plus decades, what the franchise has been lusting after since Joe Theismann broke his leg on that Monday night in November 1985. A true franchise quarterback. If Heineke is that guy, and I know that that remains unlikely, but if Heineke is that guy, do you know how much that changes everything? Do you understand the extent to which our worlds as Washington football team fans are altered if Heineke is the guy. Heineke being that guy would be like a key to another dimension, would be a key that would unlock so many things. Everything changes if Heineke is that guy. Everything changes if that's the case, and everything changes for the better. Now again, Heineke being the guy as opposed to a guy remains more unlikely than likely, but that's why you have to see this thing through. And that's why, as I keep saying, you should be open to the possibility of Heineke being the guy. Uh, unlike more than a few fans are open to that possibility, and unlike more than a few people in the media mob are open to that possibility. All I am saying is give Heineke a chance. You know that song? All we are saying is give peace a chance. All I am saying is give Heineke a chance. And don't worry, I will not be singing that. Uh, now, there's another dynamic going on between Ron Rivera and the Bills coaching staff. So the Bills defensive coordinator and assistant head coach is Leslie Frazier, a man who Ron Rivera knows well. Leslie Frazier was a defensive back for the Chicago Bears from 1981 through 1986. Ron Rivera was a linebacker for the Bears from 1984 through 1992. So they were teammates for three seasons, 84 through 86. They also coached together on the Eagles. Uh, Frazier was Eagles defensive backs coach from 1999 through 2002. Ron, again, was Eagles linebackers coach from 1999 through 2003. And it apparently was Frazier who convinced Ron to get into coaching. Ron on Tuesday. Yep. Leslie, Leslie tried to hire me a couple of times when he was in a uh... In, um, in Illinois when he was coaching there. He started a, uh, out at a program, small program. He was trying to get me to come out and do it. And, um, you know, I was still kind of reluctant. And, and, and then when I decided to, he and I ended up on, on the same staff with, uh, with Andy. So, you know, I got a lot, of, a lot of history with him. So interesting that Ron in that answer said that he at first was reluctant to get into coaching. Uh, Ron on Tuesday on why he initially did not want to go into coaching. 
Um, initially, I, I didn't because I, I kind of felt like I really wasn't as far removed as I, I felt like I needed to be. Um, at that point, honestly, I hadn't missed the game as much. Um, but then in a couple of years when I started watching it again and, and really you know, following it, I, that's when I realized how much I loved the game. You know, it's, it's, it was one of those things. If, if Leslie had come up to me at that point in time, probably. But early on, I just I don't think I was ready to. I think I wanted to take a little step back and breathe a little bit and kind of, you know, find my way. And I, I think I did. Um, you know, a big part of it, too, was at the urging of my wife. You know, she really told me, you don't have a lot of direction right now. You need to get back into football because I know you miss it. And that's really what happened. You know, Leslie was pushing for me to do it. And, um, you know, I, I saw as I saw Leslie start to progress, I realized, you know what, I can do the same thing. Yeah, you know, the NFL coaching world is a very incestuous world. You have all kinds of connections between all kinds of coaches. And we certainly have that for Sunday's game for Washington at Buffalo. But make no mistake, the Bills are what we want Washington to be. A well-coached team, a team with a franchise quarterback, or at least a quarterback tracking toward being a franchise quarterback. A team with a great defense and a team that has become a regular participant in the NFL playoffs. The Bills have gone from not having made the postseason in about a generation, 17 consecutive seasons, to now having made the playoffs in three of the last four seasons. Making the postseason has become something that's common for the Bills. Well, when it comes to your health, believe it or not, the most common of all cancers is skin cancer. Yeah, in fact, skin cancer accounts for nearly half of all cancer cases in the United States. Skin cancer is what Ron Rivera dealt with last year. If you have concerns about your skin, if you are dealing with skin cancer, if you have had skin cancer and haven't seen a doctor in a while, always know that Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He's one of the nation's premier dermatologist. He's a big Washington football team fan and a big listener of this podcast. And operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. Dr. Verghese and his team offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer, including something that's a game-changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, SRT is effective, and SRT is non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region.
Well, the Taylor Heineke hype machine continued to churn on Tuesday. Heineke did a press conference after the Washington football team's practice on Tuesday to begin the practice week for the Sunday afternoon's game at the Buffalo Bills. It is, of course, a game that follows one of the wildest and more dramatic wins for Washington in a while. The 30-29 victory over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night. Heineke was terrific in that game. 34-46 for 336 yards, 7.3 yards per pass attempt, two touchdowns, and yes, a bad interception. As Heineke, per the Elias Sports Bureau, became the first quarterback since at least 1978 to have a game in which he, over the final five minutes of regulation, had a go-ahead touchdown pass, an interception, and a game-winning drive with each thing happening on a different drive. Heineke on Tuesday on his takeaways from that win over the Giants. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was a wild game, as you guys know. Um, And there's a lot of good situations that popped up throughout the game. Um, Getting a score there before half was huge for us. And then obviously there at the end, um, we're trying to run that four-minute offense and we wanted to get a little aggressive. We wanted to end the game with us on the field. So we're trying to get that last first down, unfortunately, through a pick. Um, defense did a great job of holding to a field goal and giving us enough time to go down and score that last field goal. So um, for those situations to pop up the end and, and see us execute it pretty well, uh, that was big for us. So, um, you know, something to build on. Yes, it is. Now, maybe the most surprising aspect of Heineke's performance against the Giants was that his legs really weren't that much of a factor. He only had four carries for six yards. Heineke won that game with his arm. Heineke on Tuesday on why him running wasn't more prevalent last Thursday night. Yeah, I kind of go back and look at their defensive line. Uh, They're bigger guys um, that really just wanted to collapse the pocket. And um, so the biggest thing was just kind of staying in the pocket and getting the ball to those playmakers. And um, that's what you want to do anyways. Um, So it was good for that to happen. Get the ball in those guys' hands, let them do their thing. And um, as you can see, if you look at the stat sheet, a lot of guys touch the ball. so it was, it was a good deal of getting the ball out to everybody. Yeah, it was. Washington in the win over the Giants had seven players, each with at least one reception. Heineke knows Scott Turner's offense very well. Heineke is decisive. Heineke processes things quickly. That's so important for a quarterback. And so, yeah, Heineke winning a game from the pocket is more than possible. We can eliminate that knock on Heineke from the arsenal of the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, the taters, as I like to call them, uh, was staying in the pocket more a difficult adjustment for Heineke? Uh, I won't say it's a hard adjustment. Um, it's something that every quarterback should you know, try and do. You want to get that ball in those guys' hands, it's what we pay them to do, and that's why they're playing. So um, I mean, that was, that's my first job. And again, it's, it's something I work on every week to get the ball in those guys' hands first. And if then some, if a lane pops open, then I can use my legs. And again, on Thursday, there was no lanes to be had. So um, it was really about getting the ball in those guys' hands. And it's nice to know that Heineke's legs are a luxury, but not a necessity. Big difference there. Uh, something about Heineke's play on Thursday night that I made mention of on last Friday's show, episode 147, was the frequency with which big completions were the results of play action passes. It has long been established in NFL analytics that play action passes are more effective than non-play action passes. 
It also has long been established in NFL analytics that success on play-action passes has little, if anything, to do with how good your running game is. But here's just a sampling of the play-action passes from Heineke this past Thursday night. Uh, Perhaps the play of the game, Heineke's fourth quarter, first and 10, 19-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones. What a moment that was. That was a play-action pass. Heineke's first touchdown pass, the second quarter, first and 10, 11-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin. That was a play-action pass. Also on that drive were three other big play-action completions. Second snap of the drive, Heineke, a second and four, 22-yard shotgun play-action completion to Deami Brown, who made a nice leaping catch of a high throw. Fourth snap of the drive, Heineke, a second and eight, 12-yard shotgun play-action completion to Terry McLaurin. 12th snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown. Heineke, a first and 10, 16-yard under center play-action completion to Terry McLaurin. You get the idea. Play-action worked beautifully for Heineke this past Thursday night. Heineke on Tuesday on play-action being so effective for him in that win over the Giants. Yeah, uh, play action's great, um, especially when you're running the ball well. And uh, when you have AG back there running as hard as he is, um, it's it's good to get those backers kind of up, and then we can kind of hit it right behind them with you know big guys like Logan and and fast guys like Terry and, and Hump. So um, as long as we can keep running the ball pretty well, the play action's a good complement to that, and uh, I think it's a great part of our game. It is, but like I said, play action works even when your running game isn't going well. The good news for Washington is that the running game has been going well. Antonio Gibson, over 33 carries this season, is averaging 4.82 yards per carry. And so what about everything that's going on right now with Taylor Heineke? Heineke mania is running wild. Can he, will he channel his inner Jim Zorn and stay medium? Heineke on Tuesday on making sure that all of the attention, all of the praise, all of the hype that he's getting right now doesn't distract him from playing well. Uh, My biggest thing is I don't want the success from last week to equal the non-success of this week, if that makes sense. Um, A lot of sometimes a lot of people get caught up in how they played the previous week and it hurts them the next week. So, um, yeah, we had a long weekend. It was nice to enjoy it. But um, once Sunday and Monday came around, it was time for Buffalo. So, um, again, the the biggest thing is is to keep doing it every week, and that's, that's the goal. You know, I liked how Heineke put that. I don't want the success from last week to equal the non-success of this week. I feel like that belongs in a fortune cookie or something. Uh, And so as for this Sunday afternoon's game at the Bills, uh, this game at the Bills will be Taylor Heineke's fifth game for Washington in the regular season or postseason, but his first road game for Washington. Uh, Each of those first four games was a home game. Does this Sunday's game being Heineke's first road game as a Washington quarterback matter? This was Heineke on Tuesday. Not really. Um, It'll be my first road game starting, like you said, but it's it's at Buffalo with fans, so it's going to be loud. Uh, There's going to be some silent count stuff that we're working on this this week. Um, But again, it's a good defense, and you know we're excited for the opportunity and the challenge. 
All right, so Heineke says that Sunday's game being his first road game as a Washington quarterback isn't a big deal. This is Ron Rivera during his post-practice press conference on Tuesday on whether Sunday's game at Buffalo being Heineke's first road game as a Washington quarterback matters. No, I, I don't expect an impact. I don't, I don't think it should be that big a, de- a deal. Um, you know, uh, again, I think that I'd classify that under the interesting. Um, you know, to him, it's really about being on the field and playing on the field. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's played a lot of football in his past in terms of what he did collegiately and then some of his opportunities coming up. But yeah, this is his first real big shot. But like I said, that to me, that's interesting. Yeah, Ron likes to differentiate between things that are interesting and things that are important. So Ron's saying that Sunday's game being Heineke's first road game as a Washington quarterback is interesting is Ron's way of saying that that isn't important. Uh, We'll see. The Bills Mafia is one of the best fan bases in the NFL. What helps, though, is that this game is happening in late September and not November or December. Playing at Buffalo when it's freezing outside and you got the Bills Mafia all rabid, uh, that's one thing. Some warmer weather and hopefully for once a fast start for Washington, that would be another thing. While we're talking Taylor Heineke, I did want to work this into the conversation regarding Washington's passing game. Uh, Ron Rivera on Tuesday did address the Cam Sims situation. Uh, Cam Sims has barely played over the first two games, even with Curtis Samuel on the reserve injured list. Uh, Cam in the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one, one reception for 17 yards on one target and playing on just 4% of Washington's offensive snaps. He played on just two offensive snaps the entire game. And then Cam in the win over the Giants at FedEx Field in week two was not targeted in playing on just 11% of Washington's offensive snaps. Cam, remember, had a big game in Washington's 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wildcard round last postseason. Seven receptions for 104 yards on 13 targets in playing on 100% of Washington's offensive snaps. What up with Cam's lack of playing time so far this season? Ron on Tuesday. Well, I, I think the thing is we, we, we got to get him on the field a little bit more, you know, and, and, and that's the truth of the matter. And I, and I know they've talked about it. The coaches have talked about that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's as you get started and you, you make adjustments. I mean, the first week we didn't use JD as much. Second week it was a conscious effort. Next thing you know, it's all of a sudden a realization, oh man, that's right. That's what we do. You know, I mean, those first couple of, of, of games, learning experiences just as much for us. We know who we have, but, you know, let's make sure we're using them, you know. Um, and, and if you look at the big difference from the first week to the second week, look at how many different guys got the ball thrown to them. And when, when you look at that, you'll see that there's a huge difference. And, and to me, that's important. That, 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 I think, is what helps keep our offense diverse is who's touching it and how many different people are. Yeah, I do think that there's room for Cam Sims, especially with Curtis Samuel on the reserve injured list. I'm all for getting Terry McLaurin, Logan Thomas, and Deami Brown touches. And I get that Cam has had a problem with drops, but Cam also has proven himself to be a playmaker. He's worthy of more than one target over the first two games. Well, perhaps Cam needs to take legal action to get more playing time. Do you need a lawyer? Do you think that you might need a lawyer? If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles 
complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans. I've known the Naces for more than 25 years. These are good people. These are smart people. These are successful people. Paulson and Nace is a law firm that wins. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. You see, not all law firms focusing on medical malpractice, birth injuries, product liability, and other personal injury matters have trial experience. In fact, many law firms have no courtroom experience at all and look to settle such cases without ever presenting them to a jury. A client has limited options for reasonable settlement if he or she is represented by an attorney with limited trial experience. Paulson and Nace is like the Bill Belichick of D.C. area law firms. Founding partner Barry Nace has tried more medical malpractice cases to verdict in Washington, D.C. than any other plaintiff's attorney. Like I said, Belichick, if you're looking for a lawyer, ask yourself this. Do you want an attorney who talks about unverified successful cases or do you want a law firm that has fought the good fight for decades? That's Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. That's 202-851-9899. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast, and here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202 202- 851-9899. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. Well, we on Tuesday night had an extreme rarity, a great outing by a Nationals starting pitcher this season. I'll get to the latest impressive outing from Josh Rogers after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, in this nightmare of a season for the Nationals, nothing has been worse for the Nats than their pitching. Uh, we this season have seen a complete collapse of the Nats starting pitching, and that was happening even when Max Scherzer was still on the team. But there is a man in the Nats rotation right now who is working to change the Nats' bad starting pitching. There is a man in the Nats rotation right now who is combating the Nats' bad starting pitching. That man is Josh Rogers, who all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is arguably the best pitcher on the Nats pitching staff right now. Yeah, Josh Rogers, a guy who even the pitching-starved Orioles said no thank you to. That Josh Rogers is rolling right now. Nats won at the Miami Marlins 7-1 on Tuesday night in game two of a three-game series. Nats now are 62-89 and on the season, so one win away for making sure that they do not lose 100 games this season. And Josh Rogers was outstanding. Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey. The boys loved what they saw from Josh Rogers. So Josh Rogers is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, He's a lefty. He like does this body rocking thing when he's on the mound. He comes off like he's having the time of his life because he essentially has no business pitching at the major league level right now. But the thing is, he's done a nice job here for the Nats over these last few weeks. Rodgers on Tuesday night in this 7-1 win at the Marlins. One run in seven and two-thirds innings. Yes, he worked well into the eighth inning. Do you know how rare that has been for national starting pitchers this season? Uh, Rodgers gave up just five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He issued two walks, He had four strikeouts. He worked quickly. He threw strikes. Rodgers threw 67 strikes versus 36 balls on 103 pitches. And Rodgers made a great defensive play. Uh, Rodgers on a soft grounder toward first base by the speedy Jazz Chisholm Jr. made a diving backhanded scoop and flip with his glove to Josh Bell at first base for the first out in the bottom of the sixth. That was some play by Josh Rodgers. That might be the best defensive play that any Nats pitcher has made this season. Uh, The only run that Rodgers allowed came in the bottom of the fifth on a one-out homer by Nick Fortes to left field on an 0-2 pitch, the home run going a projected 403 feet per stat cast. But take a listen to this now. Josh Rodgers over four major league starts for the Nats this season, 25 innings, an ERA of 216, and a whip of exactly one. Now, he has faced some bad teams. He's faced the Marlins twice. They're bad. He had a game at the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're bad. He had a game against the New York Mets. Uh, They're not that good. So if you want to dismiss what Josh Rogers is doing, I get the temptation to do that. I would not entirely dismiss it, but I get where you're coming from. This is a lost season. This is September. Josh Rogers has faced mediocre to bad teams. He's done well. The thing, though, I would say is it's not like Josh Rogers is some top 100 prospect here. And so while these opposing teams haven't been that good, it's not like Josh Rogers, in theory, is that good. And yet he's doing quite well. 
The other thing, too, with Josh Rogers to keep in mind is this is not some, you know, 30-something here. Like, this is not a Paolo Espino situation. This is not a Sean Nolan situation. Josh Rogers is in just his age 26 season. So he's still young enough to where you could say to yourself, okay, maybe, just maybe, he's developing into something. Now, do I believe that Josh Rogers is going to be a mainstay in the Nats rotation for years to come? No. But what you may be seeing here is Josh Rogers proving himself to be worthy of being, say, the Nats' number six or number seven starter next year. You know, if one or more starters go down, either due to injury or ineffectiveness, you can go to Josh Rogers for some starts, and it's not like you're totally lost. But this is something else that Josh Rogers is pitching like this. Josh Rogers had not pitched in a Major League regular season game since 2019 when he was with the Orioles. The O's got him from the New York Yankees in July 2018 in the Zach Britton trade. Uh, Rodgers was taken by the Yankees in the 11th round of the 2015 MLB draft out of Louisville. He's done a nice job for the Nationals here over now four starts. And so with Josh Rodgers allowing one run in seven and two-thirds innings on Tuesday night, the Nats, for one of the few times this season, barely had to tap into their bullpen. Just two relievers were used by Davey Martinez, uh, and the two relievers combined for one and a third scoreless innings. Andres Machado came into the game with runners on first and second, two outs, and the Nats nursing a 4-1 lead. Did issue a walk to the first battery faced. Uh, Nats relievers have done that way too often this year. Machado issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Brian De La Cruz, but Machado then got the third out of the inning, and then Mason Thompson tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth. When it came to the Nats offense in this 7-1 win, at the Marlins on Tuesday night. Another good game for the Nats offense. Seven runs on nine hits and four walks. The Marlins were incredibly sloppy, including committing three errors, but the Nats hit well again. And this was another good game for K-Bert Ruiz. K-Bert Ruiz is starting to show signs here of busting out offensively. So first of all, he was the Nats number five batter on Tuesday night as uh, Ruiz got moved up in the lineup by Davey Martinez, and Ruiz delivered two for five with an RBI single and another single. Uh, Ruiz in the top of the second had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch to left field. Ruiz in the Nats 4-1-6 had a one-out first pitch RBI single to left field. Ruiz in the 8-7-10 inning loss at the Marlins on Monday night went three for five with two two-run singles and another single. He now over his last five games is 11 for 21 with a double, 10 singles, and no walk. So that's the thing. He's not hitting for power. He's not drawing like any walks, but he is getting some hits here. K-Bear Ruiz has great bat-to-ball skills. That was the book on him in the minors, and we're seeing that at the major league level. I mean, at some point, he does need to hit for some power, and it would be nice for him to draw some walks. He's basically like the new Starling Castro at this point, but you know what? Hits are hits, and he's getting hits right now. Again, 11 for 21 over the last five games. Uh, Juan Soto had another good game on Tuesday night. Two for four with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. And he reached base via error. Now, that does not count toward his on-base percentage for the record. But you can say that Juan Soto was on base four times on Tuesday night. Man, has he done that a lot lately. Uh, Soto in the top of the first had a two-out single to left center field. Soto in the top of the third drew a two-out four-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the seventh reached base via two-out miss catch error by Marlins reliever Anthony Bass, but uh, Soto was caught in and attempted to steal a second base for the third out. But Soto, in an ad's three-run ninth, had a two-out RBI double that he ripped into right field for a 7-1 Nats lead. So for Juan Soto now, he has a major league leading on-base percentage of 462. He has a major league leading walks total 
of 128. Alcides Escobar on Tuesday night, one for four with a two-run double and a walk. Uh, Escobar had an eventful six innings. So Escobar in what ended up being a four-run Nat six got things started with a leadoff five-pitch walk. He advanced to second on a wild pitch, and then he scored on the Cabert Ruiz one-out first pitch RBI single to left field as Escobar ended up running through Marlins catcher Nick Fortes in a home plate collision that took place before the ball ever got to Fortes. Uh, Escobar crashed into Fortes as Fortes was setting up to catch the throw, which was up the third baseline. And it was comical what happened. Now, neither guy got hurt. So, you know, you can say that this was funny, uh, but the two crashed into each other. And then Escobar just like falls on the home plate to score the run. So the two collide up the third baseline. Uh, and as Escobar is falling, he ends up falling down onto home plate uh, to score the run. And because there were like 10 people in the ballpark, uh, you heard a loud grunt when Escobar collided with Fortes. So that was some moment there. You don't see many home plate collisions anymore. You got one there between Alcides Escobar and Nick Fortes. And then Escobar had a big hit in that Nats three-run ninth, had a two-out, two-run double to left field for a 6-1 Nats lead. Uh, Escobar, in the 10-inning loss at the Marlins on Monday night, did have the two big defensive miscues in three-run innings for the Marlins. We talked about that on Tuesday's show, episode 149. But Escobar, also in that game, went three for six with three singles. So he already has had a bunch of hits in this series. Now, another GOAT for the Nats uh, in that loss at the Marlins on Monday night was Luis Garcia, and we certainly talked about that a lot on Tuesday's show. Garcia, as the automatic runner in the top of the 10th with the game tied at 7, inexplicably did not score on a Lane Thomas leadoff opposite field double to right field. But also for Garcia in that game were two hits, including a one-out opposite field RBI double to left field in the Nationals' three-run fifth inning. Well, Garcia on Tuesday night had two more hits, uh, went two for four, with an RBI single and another single. Uh, Garcia in the Nats 4 run 6 had a two-out RBI single that was hit hard up the middle and was unable to be handled by Marlon shortstop Miguel Rojas for a 4-1 Nats lead. And Garcia in that Nats 3-run ninth had a one-out single to right field. So some good stuff for the Nationals in what was a rare, comfortable win. There have not been many of those for the Nats this season. You had one, though, on Tuesday night with that 7-1 final at the Marlins. Now, also for the Nats on Tuesday was this. Multiple reports that the Nationals have fired a bunch of minor league coaches. Now, I have talked about this a lot, and I think ultimately this is the number one takeaway from this disaster of a national season the Nationals' lack of organizational depth and that lack of depth starting with the bad state of the farm system and the bad state of the farm system starting with bad drafting and bad player development. We can talk about who's a piece for the future and who isn't. We can talk about who should have been traded and who should not have been traded. We can talk about what the Nationals should do this offseason when it comes to free agency and trades. But ultimately, the Nats' problems are about a farm system that has not been in good shape and about a farm system that has not churned out nearly enough quality players over the last five years or so. And so interestingly, we on Tuesday afternoon get multiple reports of the Nationals firing a bunch of minor league coaches. Tommy Shields, high A manager, gone. Gary Thurman, outfield and base running coordinator, gone. Pat Rice, low A pitching coach, gone. Brian Rupp, double A hitting coach, gone. Now, you know, after each minor league season, you get some turnover, right? So to just sit here and say this is absolutely a reflection of the bad state of things for the Nationals 
is probably not something you can do with complete certainty. But I think you're being naive if you think these firings have nothing to do with the state of things for the Nationals and the farm system, with the state of things for the Nationals from a player development perspective. And one of the things that I think is impossible to ignore about what has happened with the Nationals this season is this. So that late July sell-off, the trading away of eight players for 12 prospects, I still am stunned at how aggressive and how unapologetic the Nats were in engaging in that sell-off. And I'm stunned in a good way. Like, I didn't know if the Nats had the chops to do that. And it turns out that the Nats did have the chops to do that. The Nationals, in doing that, and in doing that in that way, to me, demonstrated a recognition of things aren't good right now, and we need to make things better. You know, there was an acknowledgement that things aren't good enough. And so if you acknowledge things in that manner to where you engaged in the sell-off to that extent in late July, why wouldn't you continue that acknowledgement this offseason with, if not a house cleaning when it comes to the farm system and player development, then at the very least, some significant changes. And so I do think what was reported on Tuesday afternoon is the start of some significant changes. Now, how high those changes go, we don't know. To what extent those changes go, we do not know. I mean, ultimately, you have to say this. As much as we all love Mike Rizzo, and I'm a big fan of Mike Rizzo, I mean, he is the Nationals president of baseball operations and general manager. So the state of the farm system, the state of player development ultimately starts with him. So he bears a lot of the blame for all of this. Now, Rizzo isn't going anywhere, but, you know, you have to say that. Like, you know, you can blame Tommy Shields and Gary Thurman all you want, but like Mike Rizzo's got to be better here. Uh, but I do think that more changes are coming. Uh, I think this very much could be an offseason of change for the Nationals internally, because again, things have gotten really bad from a farm system perspective, from a player development perspective. You know, we've had this phenomenon of players on the Nationals seemingly getting worse, not better, whether you're talking about Patrick Corbin or Eric Fetty or, you know, now more recently, Josiah Gray. You know, you have guys who have been traded away by the Nationals doing quite well, better than those guys were doing here. John Lester has been better with the St. Louis Cardinals than he was with the Nats. Max Scherzer, who was very good with the Nats, has been even better since he went to the Los Angeles Dodgers. So you have to wonder about all of these things. Game three for the Nats at the Marlins Wednesday night at 640. Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. Speaking of guys getting worse and not better, I don't know that anything has been more troubling over the last few weeks with the Nats than what has happened with Josiah Gray. So good over his first five starts with the Nats at the major league level, but so bad now over his last four starts. I mean, Josiah Gray and Kbert Ruiz were the top two prospects in that batch of four prospects who the Nats got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the trading away of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And Josiah Gray is just in a real rut right now. His most recent outing, 9-8 loss to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park this past Friday night. Five runs in five and a third innings. He just could not find the plate. Issued four walks, issued a wild pitch, gave up another home run and also two doubles. Uh, did have five strikeouts. But Josiah Gray's season has really unraveled over these last few weeks. He was so promising over those first five starts, has not looked good over these last four. We know the Marlins are not a very good team. Josh Rogers had his way with the Marlins on Tuesday night. Would love to see Josiah Gray do that on Wednesday night. Well, the outcomes of Orioles games this season stopped truly mattering long ago, but that doesn't mean that these outcomes can't sting. 
And you could say that we had one of those stinging outcomes on Tuesday night, a 3-2, 10-inning loss at the Philadelphia Phillies in Game 2 of a three-game series. The Orioles' pitching was excellent, believe it or not. O's went with a bullpen game, and the approach worked. Seven pitchers combined to allow one run in nine innings. Austin Hayes continued to roll, did only go one for four, but the one was a one-out first pitch, tie-breaking RBI double to left field in the top of the 10th for a 2-1 Orioles lead. But then came the bottom of the 10th and the following situation. So bottom of the 10th, two outs, O's leading 2-1. Phillies have runners at the corners. Cesar Valdez, whose contract was selected from AAA Norfolk earlier on Tuesday, is pitching. And old Cesar, who was the Orioles' closer at one point this season, but whose season has cratered, gives up a walk-off, two-run, opposite field triple to JT Real Muto as Anthony Santander does not make the catch in right field. Bryce Harper comes flying around the bases to score the game-winning run from first base and the O's lose. Uh, the O's now are a major league worst 48 and 103 with a major league worst run differential of minus 275. Look, the O's are better off losing than the O's are winning, okay? I mean, the more losses, the better. If you're going to tank, tank, get yourself that number one overall draft pick for the 2022 MLB draft. It is a tight race right now between the Orioles and the Arizona Diamondbacks in terms of which team is going to finish with the worst record in the majors. But the O's for now do have the worst record in the majors at, again, 48 and 103. But yeah, I mean, if you do want to see the O's win at least a few games the rest of the season, uh, this game was one of those games that doesn't make you feel great. Uh, Cedric Mullins did go two for five with a double and a single. It was nice to see him have another multi-hit game. By the way, the corresponding roster move to Valdez coming back from AAA Norfolk on Tuesday was the O's placing DJ Stewart on the 60-day injured list due to a right knee issue with which he had been playing. Uh, this is a good chance to talk some DJ Stewart here. So DJ Stewart is a guy who the Orioles took with the number 25 overall pick in the 2015 MLB draft out of Florida State. Uh, this season has been his age 27 season. He last regular season over 112 major league plate appearances, only batted 193, but he did have a 355 on base percentage and he did have a 455 slugging percentage. Well, this season for the Orioles, uh, DJ Stewart was essentially the Orioles' number four outfielder. He accumulated 318 major league plate appearances. The batting average remained low. He only batted 204. The on-base percentage wasn't great, 324, and the slugging percentage wasn't good at 374. This was not a great season for DJ Stewart. He only had 55 hits, but he did draw 44 walks, and his plate discipline is actually quite good. In fact, DJ Stewart is number one among qualified Orioles this season in walk percentage at 13.8, so he does have that going for him. But he's got to develop more power if he's ever going to be an everyday outfielder. And you got to see more consistency from him offensively. But as a number four outfielder, I do think that there are some things with which you can work, namely the plate discipline. I mean, this guy draws a bunch of walks. Game three at the Phillies, Wednesday night at 7.05. A battle of two starting pitchers having two very different seasons. Keegan Aiken versus Zach Wheeler.
All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 151. will feature much more on the Washington football team as it gets set for Sunday afternoon's game at the Buffalo Bills. By the way, Washington has not won at Buffalo since November 1st, 1987. I know that Washington doesn't exactly play at the Bills often, uh, but still, November 1st, 1987. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Okay, we wound up 5-11. Not very good.